Hey everybody, it's Michael Angelo Caruso. Welcome to the Talk To Me podcast. This is episode 40. If you uh, had the pleasure of hearing episode 39, you heard from David Dino Terrace, the blind motivational speaker, very inspirational. And this week, we've got a, uh, an old friend of mine, RJ King from D Business Magazine on. How are, how are you, RJ? Uh, great to see you, Michael. You are a local hero. I don't know if you think of yourself that way, but with your background in the D and your new book, you are on fire, baby. The new book, everybody, is called Detroit, Engine of America. It's out by Momentum Books, and it's a beautifully crafted uh, book. Did you have some say in the design, RJ? Uh, a bit. The uh, the circle that you see, we call that the medallion. Uh, yeah. I did the initial design, and and then we had two designers work on that, and then we had our overall designer, Kevin Martin, put the whole thing together. I love the did a rounded, great job. rounded edges, not only on the cover, but also on the pages on the inside. I don't know what this is called. It reminds me of a, of a classic book, like a Bible or a, an old reference book. What is this called? Do you know? Uh, it's called a page mark ribbon. <laughs> and uh, obviously red silk. Yeah. And we gave it uh, a classy touch with that and the rounded corners. Uh, it's like a journal. So it's meant to evoke a, you know, like a fieldman's guide or an explorer's guide to Detroit. Yeah, I love it. It's an excellent book, and uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, uh, what it was like to write it and, and some of the little and big surprises that you uncovered. Before we sure. do, everybody, you should know that uh, my friend RJ is the editor of not only D-Business Magazine, but D-Business Daily News as well, and also the Detroit 500. He has, and his team have won 30-plus editorial excellence awards um, and he cut his teeth in the journalistic trade, everybody. He wrote for the Detroit News over 4,000 articles, most of them business-based, and you currently serve on many boards in the city. So not only are you involved with the past of Detroit, but you're also involved with the present. Congratulations, man. We went to your book signing. There were lots of people there. There's a lot of excitement about this title. How do you feel? I feel great. It, uh, it fills a niche. There wasn't really a book out there that explained just basically how this manufacturing powerhouse was built in the middle of the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fort went up in 1701 by the French, and you're literally cut off from the East Coast because there's no way to get here other than by portaging uh, by canoe uh, or boat to get to Lake Ontario, and then you could get to Detroit. Uh, yeah. So you think about how this was built, you, you know, the city had to be the citizens had to be very self-sufficient and um, it's still that way today. You can literally build anything here. Yeah, it's an amazing um, history and I've never seen it delineated in the way that you do in this book. Uh, some little surprises I tripped on as I was reading it is that Detroit is one of the few cities that's actually older than the country itself. Right. Uh, founded in 1701 and uh, older, it's the oldest city in the Midwest, even older than Pittsburgh. Uh, and, uh, you know, the first chapter takes you from 1600 to 1800 and it explains of the four superpowers of Europe, France, Spain, England, and the Dutch. And the English and the Dutch settled the East Coast. Spanish went down south and the French came up the St. Lawrence and discovered Quebec, Montreal, and then Detroit in 1701. And then Ohio and Kentucky, and that was all called, you know, like New France. And that was a way to keep 
uh, the English and the Dutch from expanding too far westward. There was a lot of uh, game, gamemanship going on back then. Gamesmanship, indeed. There were a lot of players vying for position. The, the British were involved. The, the Native Americans were involved. The French were involved. And, and under, under all of this, the, uh, the American settlers are trying to carve out their own territories. You mentioned that um, the first chapter is a 10-year a, a period. That's how the book's laid out, everybody. Seven, 1700, essentially, to 1709. Then the next 10 years, the next 10 years. And what I liked, RJ, is um, you provided the population, I assume from the census uh, reports or maybe another document, which shows how the city is growing. In 1700, the population was only 100 people. By 1850, 21,000, and by 1890, 205,000. That gives us a visual of how, how things are, are, are moving in the city, that and your great narrative. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, the first chapter is 1600 to 1800, and then it's by decade after that, and it really explains how the city was built and the major milestones. So uh, 1800 to 1810, you know, you had the Great Fire of 1805, and how the streets were laid out after that under Judge Woodward's plan. And then the next decade, the major thing was the War of 1812, where we had uh, surrendered the, uh, the city to the British for a few months and got it back. Um, and over the course of its history, you know, Detroit was settled by the French and then it became British, then it became American and finally in 1796 and then the War of 1812. And then after that, I mean, it, it just sort of just took off. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, yeah. I lived in Michigan my entire life. It was so fun uncovering these names that I know as building names or county names or city names, names like Macomb and Cass and Hamtramck. These were all real people back in the day who, who did great things for their community. And I suppose they were honored with, by having streets named after them or buildings or counties named after them. That's kind of how it went, yeah? Yeah, I think one of my favorites was William Macomb. He was... Uh, a soldier in the army and uh, during the war of 1812 the British were attacking um, southern uh, lake near Buffalo and um, so they had a whole winter to prepare for their invasion what they did was they built a lot of roads into the forest and then as they went down 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 they got narrow and narrow and narrow until the troops got clunched up and then our guys just went in there and got them so uh, lots of lots of gamemanship going on and um, you know, just amazing. And his statue is right out front of the Book Cadillac Hotel. Yeah, yeah. If it can be said, I think I'm doing the numbers right, that this book is primarily about the 19th century or the 1800s. Am I doing that right? Correct, correct. And in, at one point in the book, you say that if we were to focus on one person for the first half of the century, it would be Cass, Lewis Cass. And in the second, a gentleman by the name of Pinegree. Can you talk a little bit about those two heroes? Well, Lewis Cass, he was uh, the first governor. He um, was involved in the Revolutionary War. Uh, he grew up in Boston, was in Ohio, and then he came here, uh, was appointed by uh, President Thomas Jefferson, and uh, really was the guy that brought us out of the wilderness into a modern city, uh, had very high standards, and uh, was very well respected. And he was governor uh, for 20 plus years, and then yeah. went on to be U.S. Secretary of State and a number of other titles. Yeah, and then, cool. so he, he was the most, yeah. Twice, yeah, Cass. Pardon? He also ran for president twice. 
Yes, he did. And he lost on both occasions. Uh, but, uh, you know, very famous guy. And, uh, and then in the second half of the century, you mentioned, mentioned um, Mayor Hazen Pingree. And uh, he came here after World uh, Civil War. And he was a uh, shoe maker by trade. And uh, he was credited with uh, sort of being the first labor activist. He was a, a corporate guy at first, if you will. And then in the middle of the uh, 1880s, uh, there was a strike at his company. And it lasted uh, several months. And he began over time to sympathize uh, with the uh, activists, the workers, and changed his whole opinion around. And when he became uh, mayor in 18. Um, 89, he was a champion of the people. He took on the monopolies that were in the electric industry, the water industry, the natural gas industry, cleaned all that up, uh, was instrumental in building up Waterworks Park. During the great economic panic of 1893, he uh, allowed people to uh, farm on vacant city property. So he became uh, Potato Patch Pingree was his nickname. And uh, he went on to be governor of Michigan as well. Kingree, not Pingree. Thank you for the correction. Oh, no problem. I think that's, I think it's one of the greatest traits of a leader is the ability to change one's mind if new information or new data presents itself. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. In modern day, uh, we've named it flip-flopping. That you, <laughs> Even if you got new information, you're not allowed to change your mind because that makes you look weak. Uh, so how interesting to hear that Pingree was able to re reformat what he was thinking about important issues of the day. Um, we mentioned, and you mentioned in the book many times, the tumult from which this city grew. Uh, first, there was no government, and then there were two governments. And, and we were so disorganized in the early days, we didn't even celebrate the centennial, the first 100 years. It was because we were finding ourselves, yeah? I, I think there probably was celebration. Uh, it's just that there was no records of it. And, uh, you know, from day one, one way that the uh, settlers were able to attract other people was that we had liquor, uh, brandy and things like that. And there was some discussion of getting rid of it and uh, Cadillac and others argued there's just no way that we'll get anybody if we don't have something uh, to provide for them. So, uh, you know, all from the very outset, they had a very crude tavern that uh, was popped up and uh, they ran that. Uh, oh, it's obviously been going on for a long time. And the city uh, actually had a lot of problems with uh, perhaps having too much fun. <laughs> Some things never change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 40 days in, 18, in the 18, early 1800s, 40 days to send a letter from Detroit to D.C. on a special road, the only road that actually took you yeah. to it's hard to imagine today this the, the slowness that things must have happened uh, of course they didn't have anything to compare to but um, and also uh, so many other little surprises in the book as I was reading that the Detroit Yacht Club not the current version but the one that's there now which was of course you know uh, it was an iterative thing they add on to it there's a fire that they replaced part of it whatever this happened in many, many buildings, but the current Detroit Yacht Club is the largest yacht club in the country? Yes, that's correct. And uh, it was started in the 1850s. I have to look back to the exact year. Yeah. Uh, maybe 1849. But the, um, 
it was where the Stroh River place was. That's where it originally was. And yeah. several of the other uh, boat clubs were there as well. And they had done many, many um, novel things that, uh, you know, the first regatta and things like that. So if you need we to, were big into sailing. If you need to look it up, I have the book. Okay, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Tell us about James A. McGinnis. I, I recognize the name because I just watched a, uh, a bio about the Barnum and Bailey Circus. But most people don't know the story of James McGinnis. It's fascinating. Yeah, there's actually a plaque of him uh, at Cobo Center. And uh, that's where they uh, originally had operated the circus. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And he hooked up with uh, Barnum and Bailey. And, uh, you know, they were instrumental in, you know, putting the, the zoo on railroad and, and coming into towns all over the country. And uh, uh, must have been just an exciting time because there wasn't much to do. Yeah. You know, you think about it, no TV, you know, no radio, uh, no Internet. <laughs> Uh, you had books, and then you had live entertainment. Yeah. Um, in the in the biopic that I saw, people would go to the circus and be able to pet an elephant, touch an elephant, and there would be no way to feel that texture anywhere else in any other time in their in their lives. And so it became it was such a unique experience that stuff just shut down when the circus came to town. It was it was the big annual event. And what really interested me about McGinnis is. Like he really went into the circus full tilt. He actually changed his name to James A. Bailey, if I, if I read it right in the book, who was one of his mentors. He became this guy, and that's the Bailey in Barnum and Bailey, this, this guy that just kind of made the circus his own. It's a remarkable story. Yeah, yeah. So, and you have that, and uh, just so many characters that. Uh, were prominent in the city's founding, you know, like uh, R.L. Polk and uh, Sanders and Strohs and yeah. all those great names that we've known. They're all got a place in the book. For those of you watching from other parts of the world, Stroh is a very famous ice cream uh, history in, in Detroit. And uh, sorry, Stroh was a beer and Sanders yeah. was ice cream. And uh, they were like, they were like very favorite brands, just like Verner's ginger ale was in Detroit. Sure. But if you travel outside of Detroit and talk about Verner's, a lot of people don't know what you're talking about. Well, Verner's is a pretty national brand. Uh, Sanders somewhat. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and you know, they're both still around under different iterations, but those right. names are, you can still see them in the grocery stores. This was a bit of trivia that caught me by surprise. Apparently only one U.S. president has ever lived in Detroit. Yes, Ulysses S. Grant uh, from 1849 to 1851, and um, he, was, he loved Detroit. And he had the fastest horse and uh, won many a race on Fort Street on Saturday afternoons. That was yeah. a very uh, popular thing to do, horse racing, uh, back in those days. And then, of course, um, he uh, was moved out to uh, upstate New York and then out to Oregon, and he got into too much drinking again. and. Uh, was given a choice of being court-martialed or resigning his commission. He resigned his commission. And then when the Civil War broke out, he convinced the Illinois governor to give him uh, uh, control of a brigade. And uh, he fought. And Lincoln loved the guy because there were several other generals that were trying to position themselves uh, for the 1864 presidential election and going slow on the war. Grant didn't care about any of that. And then when the war ended in 1865, he came back to Detroit 
uh, for five days for just a hero's welcome. And I can only imagine what the party was like. Yeah, because there was drinking involved. I'm sure there was. But, but uh, what's interesting about uh, Grant becoming general is he had kind of washed out, like you say. Uh, and, and some historians paint a picture that Lincoln was working his way through all these other generals, none of whom could win the war for him. And uh, in some ways, Grant was his last chance or his last uh, choice. And it's just weird how things work out. But Grant got a lot of credit for essentially winning the war. I don't know how much of that on him, but he was certainly in the right place at the right time. Yeah, between Grant and William Sherman, uh, those two gentlemen uh, really did their job well. That's right. Uh, and, um, you know, Grant, uh, whenever he was approached, uh, later in life, when the subject of Detroit popped up, he just lit up, uh, eyes sparkling. He, he just loved this city. I'm not sure Grant was around during the time of the, uh, the, the, the building of the 12-story Chamber of Commerce, which you mentioned, is now the oldest living, uh, sorry, living, oldest existing skyscraper. I, I can't remember if it was in the country or in the city. The oldest existing skyscraper. Oh, that would be, it's in Capitol Park, uh, which is in downtown Detroit. Uh, and uh, it's now apartments, but for a time it was the headquarters of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Yeah. It's uh, where Comerica Bank uh, had its headquarters for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so it is a rather famous building. Um, I don't know if I was reading into things because I know your background in journalism, but it seemed like you spent a lot of time or maybe even, if I'm reading between the lines, relished your research on the rich journalistic tradition in the city of Detroit. You note in Detroit Engine of America that in 1895, there were 80, eight zero, everybody, newspapers, seven of them dailies. What, what, what could it have been to be alive back then, RJ, with so many opinions being published in editorials and so much news available? One might argue there was less going on, but more news available. How did that work? I think so. Again, it goes back to uh, you really had no other competition. Uh, you know, in the early days, it was a town crier literally marching down the street with the bell, you know, announcing the week's events and or if a child got lost and all those things. But as the printing press uh, in industry got more evolved, uh, you know, those papers were just uh, highly thought of. And uh, there were so many niches that you could do. You know, there would be some for Catholics, some for agricultural equipment. Uh, so you had both, you know, general news and then, you know, what we would call today trade publications. Yeah, amazing, amazing time. Let's tell some stories. Uh, the founder of Detroit, it was a guy with a magnificent name, definitely a triple word score in Scrabble. We all call him yeah. Cadillac now. What was his full name? Uh, Antoine Delamuth Cadillac. And, uh, <laughs> That's like he, a song. Uh, Complete yeah. song lyric. He, uh, he first came to Detroit in uh, 1687, as cited in the book, to yeah. scout the area. And then it took um, 14 years up to 1701 uh, for him to get the money from uh, King Louis XIV. And uh, his finance minister was Count Pontchartrain, which is a famous name in Detroit. And uh, they came in the June, literally uh, this month uh, in 1701. And started building the fort and then, um, you know, hunkered down for the first winter. Uh, he was um, innovative in that 
uh, beaver pelt trade was, uh, the, you know, sort of the currency of the day, if you will, because yeah. you didn't really have a lot of silver and gold coins, very hard to mint in those days. Um, but the merchants up in Quebec and Montreal were very jealous of him because uh, they traded with the uh, Native Americans directly, where Cadillac at Detroit, he hired the Native Americans to go out and get these pelts and would send them up to Quebec, Montreal, and then on to Europe. And uh, they were slow to pay him. They would try to undercut him. And then Cadillac complained to uh, Count Pontchartrain. And uh, so uh, Pontchartrain said, well, go to Quebec and let's get this thing straightened out. So 1704, he goes up to Quebec and they put him in jail. And it took him a year to uh, get through everything and go through a trial that was presided over by Pontchartrain. And he came back and uh, pretty much got back into the same business. And that lasted until 1710. And so finally Pontchartrain just sort of thanked him for his service, saved everybody face and governor of Louisiana. And that was that. Favorite fact about Cadillac was the domestic fact that he had 13 children and that only three were alive when he passed away. That was another thing that was happening back then. We had typhus, we had um, infant mortality. It was a hard life, and Detroit winters weren't any softer than they are these days, right? No, 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 they're not. They, um, the, the one thing that the populace had was, you know, the three main industries that sustained them were fishing, farming, and hunting. And then in the 1750s, we got into shipbuilding, yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, started when things got to really start to take off. There were no roads. So everybody kind of hugged the river, all the farms yeah. hugged the river. And then the, the inland rivers like the Rouge and the others that, um, so you, you transported goods and services uh, or goods uh, by boat to the downtown. And then again, not a lot of currency. So there was a lot of bartering and trades. Um, in 1812, this young country declared war against, I had to read this like three times because it didn't, it didn't, it, it seemed like an impossible thing. Think about this, everybody. This young country, barely organized, fighting so many things besides actual battles, they declared war against, do I have this right? Um, England, Ireland, and Canada at the same time? Yes. The balls in those guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wowie. And we persevered. Yes. Uh, we were, you know, on our home court, so to speak. So that's where the war was going on. What precipitated it was that uh, the English and Napoleonic France were uh, engaged in a war. And the English uh, accused us of supplying the French. Uh, of course, we were. And uh, they had, uh, the English had commandeered uh, several thousand uh, of our citizens to uh, man their ships. And uh, you would think, oh, why would they do that? Well, there's no other place to go, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, we declared war on England and, you know, it involved Canada and Ireland as well. And, uh, you know, like I said, in uh, a matter of a couple of years, we won that. It, it's often referred to as the second American Revolution. Uh, okay. Um, and then again, woven in this tapestry of the of the century, all these little inventions and discoveries that happened. 
the invention of matches in 1812, iron pipes being used for the first time in 1838, and the typewriter uh, making a debut, I think, in 1868. Did you think when you were writing the book, did you get a feel that, that one of these inventions maybe meant more than another, maybe something I haven't mentioned? You, you said something about matches that up, up until the time of matches, which I had never really thought of this, up until the time of matches, the solution was to not let the candles burn out, not let the torches burn out. I guess they were using oil, huh? Uh, no, they were using candles that they literally made from uh, boiling plants. And um, you literally did have to keep a candle burning all the time. And then at night, they would put uh, ashes over the embers so that in the morning they could get the fire going. And you literally had uh, sentries up and down the streets uh, going on at nine o'clock and they would say, you know, it's nine o'clock. Uh, and then they would say curfew and curfew was the French term for covering the embers. And then of course, curfew today is, you know, lights out. Fascinating. I think my favorite character, we'll talk about this guy and then, um, and then talk about some lessons that we can draw from history. My favorite character was known as the boy governor. Can you talk a little bit about, about this guy? I thought he was fascinating, and he didn't live very long, this guy. No, uh, Stevens T. Mason, and uh, it, it is Stevens. And he uh, came here in the late 1820s and uh, kind of a, a right, uh, sort of an errand boy, if you will, to Lewis uh, General Cass, uh, Governor Cass. And uh, he quickly, Governor Cass quickly took a shine to Mason. And uh, when he was away, he was uh, sort of his PR guy, if you will. Yeah. Did a very good job of it. And uh, the citizens elected uh, Mason to be there later, uh, 1834, 1835. And he was really pushing for Michigan to become a state. And, uh, you know, long story short, he was successful with that. Uh, but along the way, uh, after the election, they had earmarked $5 million to build new railroads and things like that. It didn't go too well. And um, so he was up for reelection. He lost. And then he left uh, Detroit, went back to the East Coast where he grew up. And um, unfortunately, soon after he passed away. But the youngest governor in Michigan, and I, I believe one of the youngest, if not the youngest in the country. Age 21 or 22 at, when he was governor? Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And he died at age 31, everybody. Do we know what he died of? I can't recall. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of times they didn't know what people died of. They, it's funny, especially with the women, they described that she just died. <laughs> either, yeah. either couldn't figure it out or they didn't care enough to, to figure it out. Well, they probably couldn't figure it out. But his statue is in Capitol Park. Uh, or excuse me, his grave and a statue to commemorate his life is in uh, Capitol Park where the state the first state capital was uh, in Detroit was the first state capital. And then they waited 10 years and everybody competed uh, to be the capital. They decided on Lansing because it was centrally located. But interestingly enough, the University of Michigan was started in Detroit in 1817. They put their hat in the ring. Somebody had donated 40 acres when they lost out on being the state capital. Uh, voila, they got the University of Michigan to move to Ann Arbor and that's why it's there today. Why do we keep talking French when we're in Detroit? Voila. 
<laughs> it's good. Um, yeah. Stevens T. Mason was um, one of many, many interesting characters in the in the founding of Detroit. We're talking about R.J. King's new book, everybody, Detroit, Engine of America. R.J. is the publisher of D Business Magazine. If you're in the D, you want to check it out. It, it's a fantastic publication. R.J., what can we learn from the past? Um, I, I was I was taken in, in two different directions as I'm reading your great book. I'm I'm thinking. I'm thinking that's cool, that's unusual, that's cool, that's great, how unique. And then the other side of me is like, didn't all cities start to develop along sides of the water? Um, didn't all cities name their first five main streets after you as presidents? Um, how unique is Detroit in, in, the, big, in the big picture? Don't, don't all cities go through the same kind of development process? Uh, they do, but because we were so early in the game, again, oldest city in the Midwest and older than the country, uh, this city had to be self-sufficient. And you're cut off from the East Coast up until the Erie Canal opened in 1825. Uh, if you were going West, this was the place to come. It was a celebrated frontier town, uh, got great reviews. And the first wave of immigrants, for example, were the Irish in 1808. Uh, mainly because as Catholics, they were being persecuted by the Protestants and others mm. on the East Coast. And they um, came here during the summer months uh, in those years because the French were Catholic. Yeah. And uh, the first, you know, St. Patrick's Day parade was 1808. And it's been going on ever since. Wow. What about, what about things that seem to be recurring or cycling you know what can we learn from history about i noticed in the book you mentioned in 1810 there were no bookstores we're actually losing our bookstores again is this a cycle that that we can that we can expect in certain in certain regards well in 1810 um the, you're correct there were no bookstores it was basically a logistical problem there was only 300 300 volumes of books in the entire city Wow. So if someone had a new book sent to them, the town would be, you know, on their tippy toes trying to like read it, get a copy of it, yeah. you know, have it for the night, read it at a crowd. Um, and then over time, we did get the printing press here. Father Gabriel Richard, who was uh, a leader of the community, um, both spiritually and civically, uh, helped get the printing industry started here. I think one of the lessons that uh, we could use today and into the future is you see so much division in our political process, especially in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, there's always been political differences over time, but Detroit was able to rally around or uh, kind of go above and beyond it when needed, uh, mostly when an emergency occurred. We talked about the Great Fire of 1805, but there were many other fires uh, throughout the 1800s that would just take down city blocks and just imagine the devastation that that, you know, and the, you know, just the, the fear that that would create in people that, you know, their house might be next. They literally would tear down houses uh, and get the wood out of the way so the fires, you know, couldn't spread out. Uh, you know, you just think about, you know, like the Detroit Free Press, they were out of commission for eight months because a, a fire had consumed their entire block. Wow. And there's not like they can't go down the street and get new printing equipment, right? 
you mentioned divisiveness uh, in, the, in the book, talk about the race riot of 1833. As a citizen of Detroit, of course, the race riot of 1967, and there have been at least two others, I think, in between. I read a book like Detroit Engine of America, and I think to myself, well, if we can get enough people to read this, we can learn from it and we can fix stuff. Will race relations ever be fixed? Or when somebody writes a book about 21st century Detroit, will there be mention of race riots and, and racial strife? What do you think? Can we, ever, can we ever get better in this regard? I think we can, and I think we have. Uh, I believe that we need to have, you know, uh, a way for everybody to have a chance to afford a home or, or a nice apartment. And uh, I believe that we need to do a better job with our uh, public schools in Detroit, especially um, to provide a quality education because these kids are innocent, you know, they don't have any say in the matter, so to speak. And um, it is getting better. And I think what we could learn from this is that, uh, you know, if we have to be inclusive, we have to, you know, treat people all the same and look out for each other and uh, provide a way forward so that people can have the opportunity uh, to learn a skill, a trade, a profession. Yeah. And uh, the more we do that, the better we'll be. There's an old saying, probably from the French, that in order to know <laughs> where you're going, you have to know where you came from. And sure. let this help us with that. Uh, thank you so much for putting it together. This is, again, everybody, Detroit Engine of America. It's by R.J. King, and it's available from Momentum Books. I assume it's MomentumBooks.com, yeah? Correct. Very good. Thanks for all you do for the city, uh, R.J. You're a fantastic uh, patriot and spokesperson for not only the city of Detroit, but the state of Michigan, and we really appreciate you. Best of luck with all of your, uh, all of your endeavors, and I hope you sell a million copies. Well, thank you so much, Michael, and thank you for being on your show. Pleasure. It was wonderful.